Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC in New York, I'm Charlie Sykes. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's live national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. And yes, it is still in the first 100 days. And of course, because it is the era of Trump uh, in the news this week, Russian spies, Susan Rice, social media lit up. The controversy about Kendall Jenner's Pepsi ad, which I'm not going to talk about tonight. But real life has a way of intervening. In Syria, a deadly chemical attack shocks the world. Now, this would be the same world that has said never again after the Holocaust, never again after Rwanda, but has basically turned a blind eye to what is happening in Syria right now. Of course, uh, the North Koreans have fired another missile. Controversial presidential aide Steve Bannon was removed from the National Security Agency and in Washington. The U.S. Senate moves closer to invoking the so-called nuclear option as they get ready to confirm uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, meanwhile, uh, President uh, Trump picked a Twitter fight because, of course, well, that's what he does, uh, with a House Freedom Caucus. And congressional Republicans seem to have a very hard time deciding whether they are ready to be a governing party or would rather form a circular firing squad. Now, uh, on tonight's show, we have a very, very unusual show. We've got an all-Wisconsin lineup uh, tonight, um, maybe because Wisconsin has become, you know, the center of the political universe uh, for the last uh, several years. Later this hour, we will be talking live with House Speaker Paul Ryan. And what I want to do is we're going to be asking you what questions I should ask him. And we're going to be doing that. We're going to open the phone lines up in about uh, 10, 15 minutes. In the meantime, though, I want to introduce my first guest, Reed Ribble represented Wisconsin's 8th District for six years in the House. He was also a member of the House Freedom Caucus. And uh, Congressman Ribble, uh, welcome to Indivisible. How are you? Hey, Charlie. I am doing good. It's so good to talk with you. Well, by the way, happy birthday. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I'm starting to feel old. Yeah, well, that, that, happened, that happens to all of us. Well, let's talk about, you know, what is going on in Washington. You know, you, you were there, a very, very close associate of, uh, of Speaker Paul Ryan. You know how the House of Representatives works. Uh, you were a founding member of the Freedom Caucus. Am I right about that? You are correct. I was. We started the Freedom Caucus uh, my last term in Congress uh, back in, uh, I guess that would have been 2015, with the idea that we would offer conservative solutions uh, to the House of Representatives and try to advance legislation from a conservative perspective. But uh, over the course of time, uh, it became uh, obvious that it was more about stopping what we felt was uh, not really good legislation uh, rather than really advancing uh, good legislation, which ultimately led uh, to when I left the Freedom Caucus at the end of uh, 2015. Okay, so what, what, what made you quit the Freedom Caucus? Well, ultimately, I, I, I opposed the idea of uh, trying to oust John Boehner. And the reason, the reason is because I didn't think Boehner was the problem, and we're now seeing with the new speaker that Boehner wasn't the problem, that actually the members are the problem, that you don't really have a united uh, Republican front, that it is not a conservative 
um, Congress, even though there's a Republican one. But the divisions within the Republican Party are so wide, you couldn't find any type of way to move forward. So it, it, do, do Republicans have a governing majority in the House of Representatives right now? Oh, no, no. And they didn't. They haven't had it at all. I mean, um, and and we saw that when they ousted Boehner, and then they, they weren't really going to support Paul and uh, I'm, I'm a good friend of Paul Ryan's. I'm a supporter of Paul Ryan's, and uh, I felt he would make a good speaker, and I, I didn't think John Boehner was a bad speaker. But um, we do not have a governing majority in the House, and we didn't have one for the last six years. Now, uh, for, for our listeners who are not familiar with, with your track record, you were the first and, and perhaps the only um, member of the congressional delegation to announce that he was never Trump very, very early. I think that you came out in 2015. Was, was the rise of Donald Trump and what's happened to the Republican Party, was that one of the factors that contributed to your decision not to run for re-election? No, it wasn't. It wasn't so much the rise of Trump. But the, the number one factor was, is, and still is the fact that I wanted to spend more time mm-hmm. with my grandchildren. I have a brand new grandson, just a, a month old here. But, but I, I will say this: there was an ever increasing frustration uh, that I had with the process in which the House was running. Uh, and, and by that, I mean that there was too much of a top-down system. Uh, members of Congress did not have enough say on legislation. And as a result of that, these factions that you're now seeing, and it really played on the, the uh, American Health Care Act, uh, really come to the forefront. It, instead of uh, pulling the party together, the process was so bad that it pushed people apart. Right, I'm going to get back to that in just a moment. Uh, there's a new Quinnipiac poll out showing that that right now um, President Trump's approval rating is below uh, uh, President Obama's worst poll rating ever. When he, he bottomed out in 2013, uh, Donald Trump in his first 100 days is already below that with a 35% approval rating, 57% disapprove, 61% say the president's not honest, 55% say he does not have good leadership skills, 57% said he does not care about average Americans, 66% say he is not level-headed, and the president right now is getting a negative 28% approval, 64% disapproval rating for the way that he is handling health care. Um, as someone who was uh, not a supporter, does any of this surprise you? Has it been better or worse than you expected? What do you think is going wrong? You know, I, I think that there's a couple of things that have gone wrong. First of all, uh, President Trump is who he is. Um, and I, I think... From my perspective, Charlie, he, he kind of revealed himself during the campaign, and he's uh, trying to govern from the White House in the same manner that he ran his campaign, and, and that was never going to be set up for success. Uh, secondarily to that, in many respects, he didn't bring the very best people around him uh, when he went into the White House. And by that, I mean, it's not that he has bad people. It's that he doesn't have anybody experienced in the ways of government. Uh, he does have some political people in, in, in there that are experienced in the ways of campaigning and winning elections, but he doesn't have anybody experienced in running government. <clears throat> and as a result of that, he's had a, a rough start. And um, until he gets some real high-quality people around him, but more importantly, until he's willing to listen to uh, quality people around him, he's going to continue to struggle, I believe. And that's unfortunate for the country. Um, let, let's go back to the, the, the health care issue, because you, we, we touched on a little bit earlier. Um, I will talk with Speaker Ryan later in the hour. Um, all indications are that uh, that the attempts to resurrect the failed bill have failed and that there's not going to be uh, either repeal or replacement any anytime soon. From your point of view, and you were one, of course, one of the Republicans that ran uh, repeatedly on, we're going to get rid of Obamacare, what 
went wrong? What is going wrong? How did the Republicans manage to fail on their signature issue right out of the box? I, I did my in my perspective, and I'm I'm not there, but I'm I am watching it, paying attention. I think the process was all wrong, and when when you don't get the process right, you make it very difficult to advance legislation. Uh, members of Congress should never learn about key pieces of legislation in the media or from K Street. But what happened is this was written by by uh, committee chairman and the leadership. Uh, it was uh, then tested with uh, with K Street and tested uh, through the media to see what was going to happen. But members of Congress didn't get to see it. And what, what had to happen is ultimately the legislation should have been written. Members of Congress should have seen it first. The, the markups that took place in Ways and Means and Energy and Commerce should have allowed amendments so Republican members could perfect the bill uh, and, and advance it. But you are trying to thread a very, very narrow gap here. Because let's just say that the process was, was perfect. Let's talk about the policy here. You know, historically, yeah. Republicans have never successfully repealed a middle-class entitlement that's gone into, you know, in, in, into effect. And so the first thing out of the box, you begin to hear that you're going to dismantle uh, Obamacare, which now is, you know, is a 55% approval rating. People become concerned that you're going to, that more people will lose coverage. Um, was it the process or was it the actual policy that, that maybe Americans, you know, might have told pollsters they didn't like it, but when a push came to shove, they didn't want to lose Obamacare? Well, I, I think in part it was that. And, and, and I actually tweeted that they uh, stop looking at the people, meaning the members of Congress, start looking, start looking at the policy and the process, because that's when it went wrong. And it went wrong in two different places. It, it did go wrong in policy, and it did go wrong in process. And if you, if you look at the policy, I think maybe what, what could have happened, because we did repeal Obamacare a year ago, and we got that repeal through the Senate and through the president's desk. What could have been done is on day one of the, of the Trump administration, you could have had that repeal done. And the minute the repeal happens, it forces the minority party to the table in the, in the replacement. But they, they tried to do this in a single piece of legislation, which left the Democrats out of it. Had they done the repeal immediately, just like they did in 2015, then Democrats had to come because the, the bill was going to end in two years or whatever. And and so I think that was part of the problem. Yeah, well, that, of course, is one of the questions. Having, I, I think the Republican House voted, what, uh, 40, 50, 60 times to repeal Obamacare? But then, you, but then you were firing blanks because you knew they were, that was never going to get through the Senate. It was never going to be signed by the president. So now you have the very first opportunity to actually have it signed into law, and Republicans choked, didn't they? They did. Uh, they did. I'm, and I'm not saying it's, it's Paul Ryan's fault or the Freedom Caucus fault or the moderate's fault. The fact of the matter is that conference of nearly 240 Republicans could not find enough common ground on what they wanted to do. But that's why I go back to the, my statement. Maybe they were firing blanks in 2015 when we passed it to the House, passed it to the Senate, and then President Obama vetoed it. <clears throat> but the point is that that bill did get enough votes to have that happen. And had they repealed it first, then everybody has to come to the table with a fix. I want to, uh, I want to play for you an excerpt from, uh, from an interview with Senator John McCain um, that was uh, conducted by the senior editor of The Economist, Ann McElvoy, who's our Monday night in- indivisible uh, radio co-host. Uh, you can, by the way, hear the full interview tomorrow on The Economist radio podcast. I want to play for you just a, a, a short segment of what uh, John McCain had to say about the nature of partisanship right now in Washington. 
I feel the partisanship is at an all-time high. The anger and bitterness that characterize the results of the last presidential election has been attenuated and affected here. And um, there's, uh, unfortunately, approval ratings of Congress are down around in the teens, and the approval rate of the, con of the president is in the 30s. So uh, obviously Americans are not very happy with business as it's conducted here in our nation's capital. So, uh, Reed Ribble, do you agree with John McCain that partisanship that is at an all-time high? I do. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, part, of, part of it has to do with the civic discourse in this country, which you and I have spoken about before, mm -hmm. Charlie, many times. Uh, the, the more incendiary our rhetoric gets, the more difficult it is to heal wounds, to pull people together. And so when people even have the ability of finding common ground, we've now damaged relationships so bad that you can't get there. And quite frankly, we have a more parliamentarian style of government in the Congress, which is driven more by political parties than it is by political ideas and solutions. And as a result of that, it's all about holding the gavel and maintaining power. Um, you, 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 you force more of this partisanship on the country. And then you can also add gerrymandering of districts to that list. You know, I, I know that when you were in Congress, uh, <laughs> occasionally you would look for areas of common ground, possibility of, of bipartisan cooperation. I had a very interesting talk with, uh, with a Democrat earlier today who was explaining that there was just no way the Democrats were going to cooperate with Republicans going forward because, because the base, the, the, the Democratic base, will not allow that. And, of course, n neither will the Republican base. Um, that, that basically we have now perpetual outrage machines on both sides of the divide that even if you're a member of Congress and you want to find bipartisan solutions, you, um, you're, you're faced with being beaten up. Is that, was, was that your experience in, in trying to forge some sort of uh, common ground? Oh, it was. I mean, when I ran, you know, I ran in 2010 during the big Tea Party wave, even though I didn't have a lot of support from Tea Parties in Wisconsin, I, I won in that environment. And the message I heard repeatedly when I came back to the district from, from conservatives was no compromise, no compromise, no compromise. When, in fact, our entire system is designed and developed and was set up by our founders to find compromise, and that if you couldn't find compromise, then you shouldn't move forward. And and now what we have instead is one side lording it over the other. And so um, and today we've got the exact opposite where the, the hard left, the Bernie Sanders group, is now doing exactly what the Tea Party did in 2010. Um, I, I remember the last time um, we, we spoke, you were you were talking about how frustrating it was to be a member of Congress because there were so many voters who um, really would not accept anything other than 100 percent, that, that in this hyper-partisan world that, I mean, it used to be that people said, okay, you know what, I'll settle for 80 percent, you know, or, or, or my friend that agrees with me 80 percent of the time is not my enemy. I think that was Ronald Reagan, correct, yeah, Ronald that he said that? That's right. Um, that seems like a completely different era now, doesn't it? Because if you're it not does. if you're not 100 percent, um, you are a sellout. Did you uh, did yeah. you experience that? I did. I experienced it. I experienced it frequently, and uh, and I'm a fairly conservative guy like you, and I I, I believe in principles and holding on to certain principles, uh, but I also believe in the American ideal and and this experiment and in uh, this great republic that we live in. And our founders had a lot of wisdom by forcing a system whereby we had to find agreement with the differences. The fights that we're facing today are as, are as uh, common as uh, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and those in the early days uh, experienced. And uh, we're, we're just reliving it the, 
200 plus years later. So what happens now, given all the stuff we we now sort of you know set 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 the table? But um, where where does uh, where does the Republican Congress go on the Trump budget, on uh, tax reform, on things like the border adjustment tax or a trillion yeah. dollar infrastructure? Do you, do you, yeah. you think that that's going to get done? Well, it, it doesn't look very likely right now. Um, you know, it, the, I, I think I would agree with Paul Ryan. It's likely that the uh, the health care issue dead for a while. Uh, when it when it comes to uh, to tax reform, I think that's going to be a very tough lift. Uh, the border adjustment tax is something that a lot of business people, including myself, would typically oppose. Um, and if they try to move that through the Senate, they isn't going to touch it. I don't believe that there's enough votes in the Senate to pass it. Uh, they've got a lot of work to do, and there's some real soul searching. And and uh, even though um, I'm I'm in a one year time, I'm not supposed to be giving advice to members of Congress. Uh, I would say this to your listeners: the best thing that that the Republicans in Congress could do is hit the pause button, go back to Baltimore or Philadelphia or wherever they went on their retreat, start over. And uh, they've got to have some real soul searching with each other, and uh, they've got to get everybody in the room and and talk it out, figure out what they're going to do next. Or it's going to be like this for two years. Yeah, no, I, I agree with your analysis, by the way, which means that there's a very real possibility that we could go months and months and months into the Trump presidency without a single major piece of legislation passed. Is is that possible that we would get none of these things done? I think so, because, I mean, the, the budget that uh, the Trump administration sent over to the Congress is a, a virtual non-starter. There's, even, even the most conservative members of Congress wouldn't support it. And so I don't, I don't see that that's going to go anywhere. But president's budgets typically don't go anyplace. Yeah. And, um, and so with absent a budget that they can get agreement on, it makes it difficult to do appropriations. And now you can't spend money. If you can't do appropriations in regular order, you can't change what, what the actual policy is. So you end up with another continuing resolution or omnibus spending bill. And uh, it, it looks like they're off to a really rocky start. And uh, I, I pray for Paul Ryan every single day because he's got his hands full. Congressman Ribble, thanks so, uh, so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. We'll uh, we'll, hey, we'll, we'll, you, we'll, we'll catch up when I'm back in in town. I look forward to seeing you. All right, thanks a lot, uh, Reed. You know, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with uh, Reed Ribble, Reed Ribble is one of the kinds of guys that we all when we talk about who do we want in politics, what kind of a person do we want to you know in their values and their demeanor and their intelligence. He was he was really one of them, but he's also one of the kinds of guys that, that is, I think, being pushed out in a certain way. Um, Congressman Dribble represented Wisconsin's 8th District for six years. You're listening to Indivisible Public Radio's National Conversation about America in a Time of Change. I'm Charlie Sykes. Okay, um, when we come back, we're going to set up what we're going to do later in the program. I'm going to be talking with Speaker Paul Ryan, and I want to hear from you what you would like me to ask him. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour 
wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. This is Charlie Sykes from WNYC in New York. A little bit later in the program, I'm going to be talking with Speaker Paul Ryan. And we wanted to give you listeners the opportunity to help us set the agenda for that conversation. We want to have, Let's do it this way. I just want one sentence question, one sentence that you would, if you had a chance to talk with the Speaker of the House of Representatives live, what would you ask him? I'm looking, I'm not looking for a monologue, not looking for a, a speech. One question, and um, maybe we'll have time to be able to do that. Now, our, our number is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. You can also tweet your question to us with the hashtag Indivisible Radio. And I want to set it up this way. I, and then people need to put, the, I mean, put it in a little bit of, uh, of context here. I mean, I have known Paul Ryan. I think people probably have figured out right now that I'm, I'm a Wisconsin guy. I've figured out over the last uh, 10 weeks that I am a Wisconsin guy. I've known Paul Ryan for probably more than 20 years now. I have interviewed him dozens and dozens of dozens of times, but I think this is going to be difficult, dif- different. It will be difficult, too. Uh, different. Because, uh, obviously, this is um, a different audience, and it's at a different format, and I want to have a different approach. Um, I'm somebody that has, uh, in the past, been very supportive of a lot of the things that Paul Ryan did, although he and I obviously went in, in, in different directions last year. Um, uh, he made the decision at a certain point that, uh, that he was going to go with the, with the party nominee. Um, I, I never made quite, never didn't make that pivot. Uh, so, uh, but I so and understand where I come from. That that I've known Paul Ryan for a very very long time. But I also want to ask him questions that might be very different from the kinds of questions that he would get, say, on Fox News or conservative talk radio, where I used to be. Um, and also, I, I think it's legitimate just to raise the question of you know why you know how he has changed his position. How, how do um, how has he handled this this ev- evolution? We can get into the policy. There's no question about it. I'm we're gonna you know we're gonna go to your calls in ju- just a second. We can get into the policy, but also you know I, I want to be able to discuss or at least to touch on how the Paul Ryan from one year ago became the Paul Ryan today. Now today, by the way, I think I told you this. Uh, uh, I was talking to my producer that one year ago today. Uh, was the Wisconsin Republican primary. You might remember that. I certainly remember that, where people thought that Wisconsin was going to become the firewall of rationality for the Republican Party. Instead, it turned out to be a relatively minor speed bump. Um, but there was a a very, very clear position by a lot of Republicans in Wisconsin, including Paul Ryan, um, that has obviously, uh, you know, e- evolved. I mean, let's go back. Let's play a couple of these, these, these sound bites. Um, uh, Ryan was among leading Republicans, probably the most, or certainly one of the most outspoken critics of then candidate Trump. Let's just play this from June seventh, two thousand seventeen, when he's responding to what uh, what uh, then Republican candidate Trump had said about a Mexican American judge. I disavow these requirements. I regret those comments that he made. I don't think. Claiming a person can't do their job because of their race is sort of like the textbook definition of a racist comment. I think that should be absolutely disavowed. It's absolutely unacceptable. But do I believe that Hillary Clinton is the answer? No, I do not. 
Do I believe that Hillary Clinton is going to be the answer to solving these problems? I do not. I believe that we have more common ground on the policy issues of the day, and we have more likelihood of getting our policies enacted with him than we do with her. But I do absolutely disavow those comments. I think they're wrong. I don't think they're right-headed. And, and the thinking behind it is something I don't even personally relate to. Um, and then, of course, there was the um, the Access Hollywood video in October. And um, very shortly after that, uh, Paul Ryan had a conference call with his fellow Republicans. This would have been the uh, middle of, of October. This is a, a call with uh, House uh, H- House members. This was published, leaked more recently by Breitbart. Uh, uh, Breitbart.com um, in in March. This is what this is what the speaker had to say. This was less than a month before the election. His comments are not anywhere in keeping with our party's principles and values. Uh, there are basically two things that I want to make really clear. Um, as for myself, as your speaker, I am not going to defend Donald Trump. Not now. Not in the future. Um, as you probably heard, I just invited him from my first congressional district uh, GOP event this weekend, a thing I do every year, and I'm not going to be campaigning with him over the next 30 days. Um, Look, you guys know I have real concerns with our nominee. Um, I hope you appreciate that um, I'm doing what I think is best for you, the members, not what's best for me. Okay, let's uh, let's go to the calls. Um, if you had a question, ask him. And again, um, there's really no limitation. Uh, we'll be talking with him uh, in the next half hour. Give us a call at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Um, and we'll start off with just one one sentence. If I if we want to expand it, I'll ask you, but you have to have just, just one sentence. That, that, is, that, is, that is the rule. Let's go to uh, Robert from uh, Bethel, Vermont. You are an indivisible. Good evening. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for taking my call. Um, back uh, when um, the Speaker of the House resigned, the Republicans had to beg Mr. Ryan to become Speaker of the House, and he wanted to stay with his family. He wanted to, mm-hmm. you know, he had to, we had to beg him to become Speaker of the House. So this debauchery of him being the Speaker of the House, dealing with the Trump administration, is uh, a, a plate that was served to him in his... Um, decision to become the Speaker of the House. So I personally, I think... Okay, I would, Robert, I, I, Robert, Yeah, your one-sentence question. What's the question? What is your question? Your one-sentence question. Okay, great. That's a great question to ask me. Why did he accept the position of Speaker of the House at the time he did? Actually, when, well, you know what? You, the, the, the question that you actually told the screeners was better, which is, are you disappointed now in your decision to become Speaker of the House? Which is really a fascinating question. I don't know what he would say publicly, but, but now you do realize why he was so reluctant. You also realize why nobody else wants this job, because you know what the Speaker of the House really involves, what the job is? It's her, is it is herding cats. And you're seeing how um, difficult that would be. So I don't know what... I'm, I'm guessing that he goes home uh, on a regular basis and uh, his wife looks at him and says, what were you thinking back then? How did you think that was going to play out? No, that's a, that, is, that really is an excellent question, okay? Let's, uh, again, I'm looking for the one-sentence uh, the, the question. Let's go to uh, Rick from, uh, is it Chatham? Chatham, uh, Massachusetts. You're on Indivisible. Good evening. Yes. Good evening. How are you tonight? Good. Um... My question is this, and let me just give a quick preface, and then I'll go right to the question. But no, go right to the question. Go right no, to the question. Yeah. Okay. How does hollowing out essential benefits on health plans for lower incomes 
small businesses and individuals, while reducing taxes on the very wealthy, build an engaged citizenry. An engaged citizenry. Okay, now, now tell me what your preface would have been to that question. My preface to the question is that the, uh, a lot of the figures have been showing since 2000 that the incomes and the opportunity uh, for lower-income people is going down. And there's been a lot of conjecture about it. Uh, there's been a lot of hypothesis about it, but it is what it is. And um, a lot of the costs for these people have increased. Their incomes have gone down. Their kids have joined the military for opportunity. Uh, their other kids have gone into deep debt mm-hmm. with uh, student loans. Um, it looks like our lower classes are, and I, <laughs> uh, we're all from there. We're all. So, so basically, I, I, I know I know that Republicans accuse the left of engaging in class warfare. You're, you're suggesting that it's Republicans who are engaging in class warfare. Oh yeah, I think they're beating up on the lower classes, and um, I don't understand why. Because I think what history has shown is that okay, we engage. You know what? This is a question that I'm that I'm very likely to ask him because this really goes to the heart of 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 the debate that they're in right now. Okay, you are a compassionate conservative. Um, I would, you know, would say to him, and, and you are cutting benefits for the poor, cutting taxes for the rich. Why do you think this is sound public policy? I think that's a fair question. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Uh, James from Cincinnati, Ohio, you are an indivisible. Good evening. What, what one question would you ask Speaker Paul Ryan? My one question is whether it be Democrat, Republican, hard left, hard right, whoever, when are we going to fix the problem in this country? country of underpay, underinsured, you know, people losing their jobs every day. The unemployment rate, of course, is very low, but people, the good-paying jobs are gone, and the insurance keeps rising. Those are facts, and I would just like to hear... Someone from Washington, give me an answer. All right. Now, fair enough. Now, James, could you just, um, you, you, if you're uncomfortable, you don't have to answer the question. Who did you vote for in the uh, in the presidential election? I voted for Hillary. Okay. All right. Thanks for the call. I, that's, this is the, the, by the way, all these questions are exactly the kind of question that I am looking for. Um, this is a call from uh, back home from uh, Paul Ryan's district in, in my home state of Wisconsin. Eric from Kenosha, Kenosha, Wisconsin. You're on Indivisible. Good evening. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. What, uh, what question, one question? Okay. My one question to Paul Ryan would be, given the dollar amounts have been cut from things like the Great Lakes, uh, programs to keep the Great Lakes clean and protected, particularly Lake Michigan, which mm-hmm. abuts his home district, um, cuts to the National Park District, cuts, cuts to the NEA, given those dollar amounts, while significant to those programs, are such a tiny portion of the overall federal budget, what benefit to the country is there by cutting, making those cuts relative to the harm that I think could be very real okay. relative to the Great Lakes, the National Parks, et cetera. Fair enough. Just, I mean, just a clarification, the, the, those cuts have been proposed in the Trump budget, but they have not been enacted. They have not actually... Well, the, I, the funds I, haven't been getting... But fair enough. No, fair, fair enough, because um, the, the the cuts to, uh, for example, the Great Lakes, that's a big issue, obviously, in a state like uh, Wisconsin. Our phone number, 844-745-TALK, 844 
8255. Let's uh, go uh, right in our own backyard here. Uh, Liz from Manhattan, you're on Indivisible. Good evening. Thanks for taking my call. Um, The VA is a mess, and opioid addiction is a national crisis. What will Congress do about our veterans who can't get health care and are addicted to opioids as a result of the injuries they received in service to their country? And by way of context, I've got a family member who, yeah. Um, That is an excellent question. This is one of those issues, and maybe I'm giving away my cynicism, where I, I hear the politicians talk about this, but... I'm not sure that I've actually heard a solution that deals with something, with the magnitude of this problem. Well, um, in fairness, I, and I never thought I'd say this, and I certainly didn't think I would say this on the air, but I am a screaming liberal who, you know, moved to another state to campaign for Hillary Clinton. And I called, I reached out to uh, my family members, congressmen, who was a very conservative uh, Republican, and shout out to Congressman Rozier, who, hmm. like his staff, has been helpful and responsive and compassionate, and I appreciate that, but a person shouldn't have to, shouldn't have to reach out to their elected official in order to get the health care that they deserve by virtue of having served their country. Um, that should just be forthcoming from the system that is designed to protect the people who have protected us. Liz, thanks so much for the call. I appreciate it very much. Uh, and we'll put, by the way, uh, Adam from uh, Piscataway, New Jersey. You are an indivisible. Uh, my producer hey, is laughing uh, at my me. One, <laughs> my one question is, um, how does Paul Ryan intend to combat the perception that the GOP has been making cuts that benefit the very wealthy, especially with the advent of Trump? And how does that affect things? Well, that is an interesting point, you know. You um, and I'm, one of the things I, I'm hoping to have the time to get into with uh, Paul Ryan is, uh, you know, Paul Ryan had um, represented a very different, much more, I would say, compassionate face of conservatism. You're asking, um, given the optics, um, how is how is this working out at the at the moment? Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. We're we're, we're keeping we're keeping. Believe it or not, we are actually keeping track of all of these uh, questions. Uh, let's go up to New Hampshire. Howard from Sugar Hill, New Hampshire. Uh, welcome to Indivisible. Good evening. What one question would you ask Speaker Paul Ryan? I would like to ask Speaker Ryan how he can defend the cuts to NIH and also uh, the devastating cuts to Meals on Wheels. You know, I actually spent some time trying to figure out how, how deep the cuts to Meals on Wheels was. I was not able to actually determine it, but uh, I'm, I, I, w- I will, yes, those, that, those are good questions. I think a lot of people, we've had multiple questions um, on that particular issue. Uh, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. Um, let's go to, uh, let's go up to uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm going to be there in a couple of weeks. Uh, Evan from Cambridge, you're on Indivisible. What would you ask Speaker Paul Ryan? I would ask him specifically, what can you and what will you do to decrease partisanship in the country and Washington, D.C.? That's a great question. I don't know if anybody has any answer. And, and I, what I love talking to politicians, they will always talk about how they want to do that, but then they don't. So actually, one of the questions I'm, I, I do have down on my own list 
is uh, earlier this week he said he did not want to see um, President Trump cut a deal with the Democrats on Obamacare. So he's already suggested that he did not want to see that sort of thing. Well, so we'll see um, where they're going on all of that. Uh, Jill from Los Angeles, California. Thanks for joining us. What would you ask Speaker Paul Ryan? Thanks for having me. Sure. I'd like to know if there's any hope of impeachment of this unqualified man, and if not, why not? Um, What would you impeach him for? (laughs) She told me to keep it brief. So... Let's start. Let's start so, with what with what you uh, what you told the screener about the investigations into Russia. Exactly. Is that, so that, is, is, is that, that what you're concerned about? I'm concerned about everything, but you know that seems to be the most impeachable offense at this point, if it's proven to be true. Yeah, that's that. That's of course the issue is that we we're living in an era of bipartisan leaks. Every single day, you get a leak on one side or leak on the other side. I'm I'm in the position of I want to know what the truth is. I really do want to know what the truth is. And I would like to have the truth determined by somebody that is, in fact, trustworthy. And at the moment, I'm, I'm not sure who that is. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I do think the Senate is doing a, a reasonably, good, uh, reasonably good job um, doing that, but, but I don't know. Um, okay, let's go to uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Kish, you are on Indivisible. What would you ask Speaker Paul Ryan? Hi, I'd like to know how giving a tax cut to the CEOs of health insurance companies will help our supposedly tanking Obamacare. What would you like to see done with Obamacare? Well, definitely not give tax cuts to the to the CEOs that make over $200,000. But, yeah, I'd like to see it be more affordable, and I'd like to see the, the, the poor get more of a tax break. So they can invest it in health care. I know they get uh, credits and stuff like that, but there's so many things wrong with this proposal that that to, to cut hospitalizations and mental health care and all that, I mean, it's just insane what the, the conservatives are proposing. But I'm just baffled by how can a tax cut to the CEOs that make over $250,000, how is that going to help the deficit they're already crying about with this health care plan? Kish, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. I guess that is all the calls that we have time for. That went really fast, didn't it? Um, When we come back from the break, we'll be talking uh, live with Speaker Paul Ryan. You're listening to Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. Stay with us. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. This is Charlie Sykes from WNYC Studios in New York, and I want to welcome back my friend, Speaker Paul Ryan, Indivisible. Charlie. Good evening. 
Are you doing this in New York City? Yeah, we, we are not in Kansas or Wisconsin anymore. Good grief! All this right. is this is like an out of body experience. It's nice to talk to you again. It is. It is great to talk with you. So let's just get right. By the way, this is a different different world we're in here. This <laughs> is the last time you and I talk. <laughs> yeah, so, it is, isn't it? Yeah. So the the word on Twitter where I get all my news these days say that yeah, you were great. at the White House tonight. Um, um, are we going to get health care this spring? And oh, yeah. if not, is it dead? Well, no, no, it's not dead. Um, it's it's a, it's alive, and we're we're making progress. <clears throat> we've gotten some reforms that we've agreed to, and we're working on some others. So, uh, we've make we're making good steps in the right direction. Um, we've got a number of concepts that our members are working toward uh, to improve the bill. It's all about how do you bring down premiums even more, and and so we've got some ideas we've already agreed to, and we're working on some others, which will take a little bit of time, just getting the analysis and getting language drafted and. And, and further negotiations, but we're making progress. Okay. Well, the, the, the polls would suggest that this bill had a 17% yeah, approval rate. Like to say and, that. And, 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 but that was before there were reports that, you might, that Republicans might water down protections for people with pre-existing conditions, grant state waivers on the so-called community rating, which allows insurance companies to charge <clears> sick people more. So, you know, right now, are, are you losing the public relations war? Whatever's going on inside of Washington, are, are, have you convinced the American public that you have the right idea? Well, I think the American public uh, who experiences Obamacare does not like Obamacare because it is a collapsing system with skyrocketing price increases, massive deductibles, and the insurers are telling us it's going to get even worse next year. If you're not on Obamacare and you just think of it as just generally health care, then you know, you're not, you don't know what to think. Um, you, obviously, um, the Democratic half of this country, let's just say, let's just for the sake of argument say we're a 50-50 country, um, the Democrats don't like any move to repeal Obamacare. So that's a lot of people right there who don't like what we're doing. And then there's been a, a, a debate among Republicans about how best to go about doing this. What's frustrating for us in the House and for many of our members is the only way we can do this is to use the Senate's procedures. It's called reconciliation. It's a budget bill. It's the only way to avoid a filibuster. The problem is we cannot put all of the reforms that we really believe and that we like as conservatives, which are pick, create more patient-centered system, we can't put all of those reforms in a Senate budget bill because right. the rules prohibit that. So it's that confusion surrounding this bill that drives that. But when you take a look at our entire effort, it's three-pronged right. approach. One is this bill, which cannot be filibustered in the Senate. Then it's all the deregulation that the HHS Secretary Tom Price can do to bring market stabilization, bring down prices even further. And then third, those other bills that we believe in that will lower health care costs that have to go through the filibuster, medical liability reform, let people buy insurance across state lines, um, let people buy, small businesses buy insurance in nationwide buying pools through their trade associations. Those are things that we would love to put in this bill, but the Senate rules prohibit yeah. us from doing that. And it's that confusion that kind of has people, you know, confused. Well, the uh, the reports this week were that in order to get this thing through, you might actually, again, um, water down the protections that have been built in for people with pre-existing conditions. So if somebody is listening to us right now, you know, from uh, from Minnesota or California, you know, are are you going to take away that guaranteed no, there, there's issue? A commitment. There's a there's a solid commitment in our Congress to to, to safeguard pre-existing conditions. It is all about how do we get prices down while we make sure that that people with pre-existing conditions are still covered or still protected. But it's all about what are the better better ideas. Uh, risk sharing and risk pools is something that we've been talking quite a bit about, which, you know, if you remember, we had a good one in Wisconsin. We had a good high-risk pool in Wisconsin 
where people with pre-existing conditions could get affordable coverage. They didn't go bankrupt when they got sick. And what it ended up doing is it made insurance cheaper for everybody else because the risk pool covered those with catastrophic illnesses so that the rest of the insurance pool did not necessarily have to do that. Those are the kinds of ideas we're talking about, which is how do, how do I have our cake and eat it too? How to make sure that everybody, regardless of their health condition, can get affordable coverage, but that we can lower the price of coverage for, for, for average folks, which is not what Obamacare is doing. Remember, Obama himself said, it's going to lower your premiums by $2,500. It did the exact opposite of that. Remember, he said, we're going to ha- you're going to have the plan you want to choose from. A third of all counties in America only have one plan to choose okay, from. So, so when, when, when will we see a bill? Well, we're working on that. I don't want to put a timeline on it, only that I want, we want to get this right. We're, we've made some improvements already. We've got some things that have been agreed to, but not all of it has been agreed to. So we're still working on that, and it's going to take some time. So that's why we're taking the relevant amount of time to get it right, to write it correctly, and to get the consensus, we're very, very close in our conference. Ninety percent of our conference was already there. Ten uh, percent was not. Okay. So we're having the kinds of productive mm-hmm. conversations between uh, House Republicans uh, and and the White House and other other experts that we're consulting. Mm-hmm. By, um, by by the end of uh, April. I, I won't. I'm not going to put data, date on it, but yes, we're moving as quickly as we can, um, and we obviously anticipate doing that this spring. But I'm not going to put a specific date on okay. it because I don't want to put an artificial deadline on what is really promising good work that's occurring. Okay, I'm, I want to share with you some of the questions that we got from from the the audience and give you a chance, you know, tee tee them up uh, so you can respond briefly to them. You know, our first caller uh, out of Massachusetts uh, wanted me to ask you. How does cutting benefits for the poor and cutting taxes for the rich, how is that sound public policy? And that's the way, of course, a lot of people look at what you're doing with Obamacare, that you have this massive tax cut, um, and and many people will, in fact, lose their health insurance. How do you respond to that? Well, I'd say a couple of things. Number one... Uh, we're repealing all of the Obamacare taxes. It's a pledge we made, and also uh, we think the Obamacare system is collapsing and failing, and we want to replace it with some, something that will actually work, that's going to be better health care with better, lower prices and more choices. We believe in a patient-centered system. That means choice and competition in health care. You don't have one insurer to choose from, but many insurers to choose from, so they compete against each other for our business. With respect to health care for the poor, I assume that that's referring to Medicaid. Yes. Well. Medicaid is not working in many states. Many doctors don't even take Medicaid anymore, so it's a system that is in dire need of reform. And what's very interesting when you look at this situation is every state's different. The, the, the health care system, the hospital systems, the insurance system, and, and the condition of, of the poor in the states are vary from state to state. Will, state poor, people, will, will poor people lose health coverage as no, a result of your no, legislation? No, no, we believe this will lead to better health care coverage for the poor because what we want to do is give the states the ability to make better changes for health care for their populations. You know in Wisconsin that we wanted to do more reforms to to Healthy Wisconsin, to our our Medicaid program, but because of the federal government, we can't have better reforms to make it work better, to make it so that doctors want to take Medicaid patients. So by giving the states control of the Medicaid population, by giving them states control of Medicaid itself, they can do more innovative things to make it actually work for their state instead of going through this cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all, top-down Washington micromanagement. But do you understand how that line works, that here's legislation, the first thing out of the box, you know, after an election in which we talked about the need, you know, to help the average working person and the incredible, you know, disparities of wealth, 
where you are having a big tax cut for the wealthy, and there will be cuts in benefits to lower income people. Leaving aside, you know, the the the, the other things, um, does do the, the rich need a tax cut right now? The the, the one tax. Um the one tax increase that we delayed in Obamacare is actually the, the tax on high wage earners, the Medicare payroll tax on high wage earners. That's the one thing we actually delay for many years to finance um, more programs for Medicaid. So uh, the other point I'd say is we're going to, after we're done with health care, um, focus on tax reform, which is reform the entire tax code. So with respect to the taxes itself, there are a lot of uh, onerous Obamacare taxes that are making health care more expensive, making medical devices more expensive, that are not working, that are making it harder for people to get affordable coverage and devices. So we're going to get rid of these Obamacare taxes because we think they're bad for the economy and bad for health care. Okay. But then we're going to go reform the entire U.S. tax code. Mm-hmm. So the, the story on tax policy mm-hmm. is not yet written to its fullest extent, because we've got to reform our entire tax system so we get faster economic growth. Our goal in tax policy is not to sit around and, and, and decide you know, how to redistribute people's money. Our goal in tax policy is to get the American tax system whipped into shape so we can keep jobs in America. Okay. Uh, let me Now, you have to understand, I'm you know, broadcasting here from public radio in New York, so I'm surrounded by people who ask me questions like this. For example, why does Paul Ryan have so much contempt for poor people? I, I kid you not, so I thought I would give you That's that question. Right. I just took a sip of water, though. pretty good. Jessica from Yonkers wants to know, why does Paul, Paul Ryan hate poor people? Well, uh, let me just say this. I don't. Um, <clears throat> I just don't believe that more government, more spending, more top-down bureaucratic micromanagement from Washington is the way to save people from poverty. If you actually take a look at my record and, and, and what we actually proposed as House Republicans, we think we have much better ideas for going at the root cause of poverty, fight poverty and its root causes and help break the cycle of poverty. We have a plan for upper mobility and fighting poverty that we think will work. We have we are now in the 52nd year of the war on poverty. Trillions were spent and yet the poverty rate is about the same as it was when we started this. It's a stalemate. So this this idea of measuring success in fighting poverty based on how much money we spend or how many rules and programs come out of Washington is a ridiculous notion that doesn't work because we're not measuring the right thing. We should be measuring whether our reforms actually get people out of poverty, actually create wealth and opportunity and upward mobility so people can get out of poverty. Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of reforms we're talking about. How do you do reforms to help local communities, help poverty fighters, to get people out of the cycle of poverty? And I would strongly argue that we have a lot of federal programs that make it harder for people to get out of poverty, that are trapping people in poverty, that are disincentivizing work and upper mobility. And so we have a a long, wide variety of ideas and reforms that we're moving through Congress that we're proposing. All right. Let me let me ask you this other question that's coming up over and over and over again about your relationship now with uh, with Donald Trump. Is of course you had been very outspoken during the campaign. Let me ask you this directly. A lot of people say, so has Paul Ryan made kind of a Faustian bargain to overlook the things that Trump says about you know women, the textbook cases of racism, th- that you've made this calculation that that you can't break with him or criticize him because it's more important for him to sign your legislation so that basically. You've had to swallow a lot in order to get your agenda passed. Is 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 that the way you can conceive it, Charlie? I represent the legislative branch of government as the Speaker of the House. Donald Trump just got duly elected President of the United States. I think the American people want to see their government work, and it is my job as head of the legislative branch 
to do everything I can to help make the executive branch work well. I want to see Donald Trump succeed because if Donald Trump succeeds as president, America succeeds will you as criti- a country. Will you criticize him if you think he crosses sure, the line? Of course. I, look, you, remember when he talked about torture? I said, I think in the press conference, you know, hours later, we're not going to change the laws surrounding torture. So clearly, mm-hmm. if I see things that I don't agree with, I'll say so. But what I want to do is make him successful so that America succeeds. And I also believe that means tackling an agenda mm-hmm. that addresses people's problems and improves people's lives. Okay, earlier today, um, the president had an interview with the New York Times where he made a number of comments, including that people thought that Susan Rice might have committed some crimes. But he also said that Fox News host Bill O'Reilly did nothing wrong in his treatment of women. And, of course, we know that he's paid out about $13 million in treatment. So the president of the United States, the leader of your party, says Bill O'Reilly did nothing wrong. Paul Ryan, do you agree really with him? I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I'm not sh- very familiar with what Bill O'Reilly, I think I remember hearing a few years ago he did some phone conversation, but I, don't, I, can't, I can't speak to that. I don't even know what the heck you're talking about, Charlie. Well, you were talking about um, the New York Times story that documented I, all of the cases I, of sexual please, harassment. And, please uh, don't take offense to this, no. but I don't read the New York Times all that often, and I'm just not familiar with the story. You know, I've described myself... I'm really in, not. No, no, okay. I, I, you know, I've described myself in the past as a, as a Ryan conservative, and I, I remember last year, it was... Oh, you re- and I talked about this a lot last yeah, year. Yeah, no, we did. I mean, there were two very distinct brands of conservatism. You know, you know, Ryanism was for free trade, open immigration reform, was aspirational, it was inclusive. Very, very clear contrast to, to Donald Trump. So I guess my question to you today is, is there still a distinctively Ryan brand of sure, conservatism, or, or have you folded into the Trump agenda? No, I think what we're trying to do is make both work together. I think what we're trying to do is make these things work together. We have agreed on a common agenda that we're going to work on. Um, we have agreed, first of all, you said open immigration. That doesn't mean open borders. That means securing the border. I've always been for securing the border, and I know you know that. But it also uh, talks about um, upper mobility, welfare reform. It talks about tax reform, um, patient-centered health care reform. Um, the kind of entitlement reform we're getting with this health care bill is a ma- it's the biggest entitlement reform we've ever had. That's stuff I've been talking about for years, and you know that. And so what we have before us is an agreement that we're going to be tackling these tough issues together. Do we, are we different kinds of Republicans and conservatives? Absolutely. You know that. Yeah. But we have an obligation to work together for the good of the country. So twi- we have an obligation to right. try and so, make this work so we can advance our common goals and principles. And that's so, 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 so Twitter, the president's Twitter account, making your life easier or harder? I actually don't read it. <laughs> I, 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 am, I am made aware of some of them every now and then. Um, it depends on the tweet. Uh, ask me on a tweet-by-tweet basis. Uh, it's kind of a Paul, yes, a Paul Ryan bubble. No. Do, you have, do you have staffers who keep you from reading things? <laughs> yeah, I actually, I just take, I, as a general rule now, I don't go on Twitter. <laughs> um, we, we, got, we had a bunch of questions uh, about the budget, the proposed budget, including wanted me to ask you, so how do you defend cutting money to the NIH, cutting meals on wheels, you know, cutting yeah. programs for the national parks and the Great Lakes? Um, I, I haven't. I haven't, uh, I, I haven't heard what your comments were about the president's uh, budget cuts. Yeah, I actually support the NIH. I helped broker the agreement to do what we call the Cures Act, which was an agreement to increase NIH funding because we cut spending in other areas for that. So um, I'm a big fan of the NIH. Um, that's a specific point I'll make. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but the, the budget they sent us is a budget that we're going to look at and process, um, and, and Congress will do its own work on the budget. So this is just the beginning of the process. There are clearly domestic discretionary spending programs that I think are wasteful, duplicative, bloated, that need to be cut. So uh, you know me. I'm a budget hawk. I think there are a lot of things that should be cut back. I think there are a lot of reforms that are, that are desperately needed. Um, but I also think we need to focus on um, what we call mandatory spending, and that's an area where I think we need to These find are the entitlement savings. programs. Yeah, the entitlement. That's where I think we need to find spending um, for things like the military and the rest. So what what happens in the new presidency of any new president is they don't give you a complete budget up front because they don't have the time to assemble one. So what we saw is what they call it the skinny budget. We just saw mm-hmm. a piece of their budget, and they didn't want to show an increase in the military that's not being offset. Um, but they haven't shown the rest of their budget. And Congress will take all of it under consideration and proceed with our budget. We do believe there's a real problem with our military. It's been hollowed out. It needs to be rebuilt. But we've got to pay for that spending. And so this is one way of paying for the spending that they've suggested. Congress is going to look at a whole bunch of different ways so that at the end of the day, we're paying for the spending. I wish we had more time. But, Speaker Ron, I want to thank you so much for joining me again um, on the radio. You know, it's been nice. You're sitting in New York doing this now, aren't you? I am. Wow, that is just out of – that's just – I just never thought I'd talk to Charlie Sykes sitting in New York doing a radio show. I never thought I'd be talking to Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House of Representatives. So so we are even. Thanks so much, Paul. I appreciate it. Take care. So uh, that is, that's all for tonight. That went fast. Um, uh, tomorrow night, host Carrie Miller of Minnesota Public Radio will talk about the idea of the American dream, if we all share the same idea of what it is and how that affects our democracy. I also want to let you know about a project uh, that we're doing here at Indivisible. We are partnering with StoryCorps on something that will hopefully help us get out of our bubbles, at least a little bit. So we're asking you to sign up to interview somebody in your own life with whom you disagree with politically and home and with whom you're on speaking terms. If you'd like a, a, your pitch, StoryCorps will help you produce, if you like, it will produce the interview, and you'll come on the air to talk about it. You may have somebody in mind that you want to interview. You may want us to partner with you, um, to hook you up with somebody. Either way, email us at storycore.net with the subject line, Indivisible Interview, Tell us who you want to interview and why. I'm Charlie Sykes, and I'm guessing I'll be back next Wednesday. Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.